0: All right, everyone. Welcome to the Advanced Training Podcast. Today is going to be a big one. It's one that that I know our crew has been waiting for a long time. We have with us Coach Tony Holler. He is a He's a state champion track coach. He was a basketball coach, a football coach. He's the co-founder of the track football consortium. He's the creator of Feed the Cats. He's also a chemistry teacher, which was my favorite subject in high school. I'm also a chemical engineer outside of the training game. But uh, one thing I have to mention before we start, there's a a few people in your life that you meet or you research that flip everything on its head. I'd say reading coach's work. He's an author. I started out by reading uh, one of his blogs on new ideas for old school football coaches. I read another one, 18 survival tips for all coaches. It flipped everything I knew on my head and it became a seminal moment in my life, reading his work. And it changed the way that I coach. It changed the way that I live. And then he was nice enough to, uh, I reached out to him after I was, uh, removed from my head football coaching job mid And he, he, he really took the time, talked to me, invited me to come to Festus, Missouri, to the Track Football Consortium, and I brought a couple of the coaches down with us, and we're sitting on the edge of our seats listening to this guy talk. So, Coach, thank you so much for coming. This means a lot to me. It means a lot to my crew. That's
1: probably the nicest uh, introduction that anybody's ever given me, so thank you, George.
0: Coach, w- well-deserved. And just you know, just so people know, we'll get to the questions in a second. The, the main premise of what Coach is going to uh, talk about a lot, is that training is not all about making your guys tired or ruining them or making them mentally tough by beating them up every single day it's about performance, and i'm not going to do take 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 any more away from your coach so I'm just going to start off with the questions all right right. I'm ready um, so the first thing i got to ask you is uh, it, it's it's often been said uh if you haven't at least once you aren't trying hard, hard enough, and I got to ask you you're a guy with a lot of success you're you're a famous public speaker now you're an author. You're going to other people's clinics. Have you ever been fired? And if yes, how did that apparent failure lead to better success?
1: Yeah, i a say um, it's a great story. And I think we all have great stories. Um, uh, I all I ever want to do is be a basketball coach. My dad coached basketball for 47 years. I was his oldest son. Uh, I was his wingman all through my life. Um I I was handed the keys to the car, so to speak. When I was 23 years old, I became a head basketball coach, the youngest head basketball coach in the state of Illinois. Uh, We had a big gym and actually a a relatively small size school, but we were still playing against the best teams in the state. And um, uh, we (laughs) it was maybe the worst basketball job in the state of Illinois. That's why I got it at the age of 23. Uh, They had had one winning season in the previous 20 years, and the year before I got the job, they had gone 0-25. That's, that's really hard to do in basketball, to lose every game, but they did it. And I was the assistant coach uh, for that season. So I was given the keys to the car. And even though you know I felt like we really, really improved and we were competitive, my first five seasons were losing seasons. I still loved it with all my heart. Um, it's uh, that's how much I love basketball. Any basketball coach, you can go through five losing seasons, still love it. And then uh, uh, we had three uh, not great seasons, but, you know, seasons where we won like 14, 13, 14, you know, three years in a row. We had, um, I, I felt like we'd really turned the corner, but uh, I my best player and smarted off uh, and, and swore at an assistant coach of mine during a game. And I sat him for the rest of the game and ripped him after the game and uh, the superintendent did the best he could to keep my job uh, there was a special board meeting three days later and he succeeded but then uh, you know even though i thought everything was behind me they fired me at the end of that season so here it was i'd coached as a, a head coach for seven years it was all i ever wanted to do i had four little kids at home. i had a wife with a teaching job and it was kind of like a divorce you know uh, it took me a hell of a long time to get over it now um the great thing is is the fact that I was not able to go anywhere else and ever coach basketball uh, I became the head track coach at the same school the same actually a month before I was fired as basketball coach, I became the head track coach and if you know anything about track track is like the orphan sport I mean parents don't <laughs> even come to track meets uh, and so I was able to coach track in a way that uh, any way I wanted to. I mean, nobody's watching me. Um, and so I was very courageous to try new things. And, uh, and so looking back that divorce, that firing in 1990, even though it was the hardest thing I ever went through professionally, opened the door to something else that became, you know, kind of my life.
0: And coach, have you, you've had great success since that time. Have you ever been able to get past that moment or is that something that still eats at you?
1: Uh, No, I'm past it now. It was, I I think, you know, just like, like I said, like an ugly divorce or something, it takes a long time to get back on your feet. Uh, But, but I, I I was able to redirect uh, my work into my family, my four kids, uh, which I think was important and then redirect my attention into track and field. So uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I would have to say that for maybe five years after losing my basketball job, that's kind of all i thought about, but uh, but I, I never have those thoughts ever again. Basketball is actually kind of an ugly sport where everybody hates the coach and the parents are awful and the kids all think they should be starting and averaging 20 a game. So, um, so I, I look at, at, at that firing is actually a blessing where I'm in a better sport around better people and all that stuff.
0: So now I I remember being at one of your clinics and you talked about your son's reaction. He said he didn't want to be on the track team and you were the track coach that he wanted to go play baseball. Uh, How did that change the way you approach coaching?
1: Well, I think um, you talk about seminal moments. Um, I won, uh, let's see, a a third place trophy, a state third place, a state uh, two third place trophies and one state championship in my first eight years of coaching track. And so I had very good success um, in track and field. And then my son, who could dunk a basketball in the eighth grade, I mean, he's one of those, you know, terrific athletes. That a school has to get out for track. And he just told me one day, he said, Coach, or Coach, he said, Dad, I think I'm going to play baseball in high school. And I thought, you know, this happens way too often where I am not getting the best athletes in the school out for my sport because track sucks. And, and, uh, um, and so that was really the birth of feed the cats where, where I said, I don't care if we are undertrained, I don't care if we're not in as good a shape as our opponents. Uh, we are going to get the good athletes out and I'm going to make it a positive experience for them. And of course, Alec did go out for track. He was an all state hurdler. And now he's one of the best hurdle coaches in, in, in the United States. So
0: um, so it worked. So what, what made track suck?
1: Oh, geez. Uh, you sound like somebody who's never run track, George. I, I uh, thought. <laughs> uh, you know, basically, uh, my middle school, high school, and college track and field experience was I was just fast enough to get a, a little bit of, of, of positive feedback, you know, from meets, you know, like win some races and things like that. But every day was uh, was just repetitive nonsense where we just ran and ran and ran and and it was uh, it was brutal. Uh, literally my spring from the year 1970 to the 1981 was ruined every year because of track and field. And I know I, I was a 400 meter runner, which does play into things. Uh, Obviously, if I was a high jumper, I would have had a much different experience, but the thing is, back in that era, and I think it still exists, uh, there are a lot of track coaches who want to focus their training on the 400 meters, believing that speed is inherited, you know, that God creates runners, and so we're going to make a bunch of 400 meter guys that can fill into the relays, but we could also move them up into the 800 mile. And so the 400, that relentless just running repeats 10 times 200, 10 times 300, things like that becomes kind of a staple of of track and field in the old fashioned way. And, uh, and, you know, I've just changed all that where, where my practices are actually, um, if you ask any of my kids, I think they would probably say it's the best part of my day. And I think that's really essential to get kids to do their best to get them to love what they're doing
0: and you mentioned that this term feed the cats well what does that
1: mean well um it has a couple different meanings i I love the word feed as as a coach i I think coaches uh have always been dictators uh coaches have always seen themselves as like general patent types um demanding tough uh the military model of sports is everywhere and it sucks. I hate it. Um, so the the idea that you're feeding kids, um, to me is like a nurturing situation. Uh, it's, It's like a love situation. Uh, instead of demanding, they do it this way and punishing them, you know, consequences and all that. There are no consequences in feed the cats. Well, kind of there are, but, um, The main thing is that I am feeding them what it takes to get them to perform um, on a very high level. Now, cats is interesting as well because cats are the ultimate sprinters. They're the ultimate fast twitch athletes of the animal kingdom. And And so what I want is for my, I wanna feed the cats of my school, but I also want to attract them to my program because those fast twitch athletes I mean you need all types but those fast twitch athletes are the athletes that are going to win for you in football, basketball and track and and so they are fast twitch and then I think you could also look at just the behavior of cats. You know, they are confident, they're they're killers um, and then they sleep 20 hours a day. So we'll get into all that stuff about prioritizing rest.
0: Now when we went to your uh, clinic. We were, we walked out of there with our head spinning, like, Oh my God, like, do you need cats? Can you develop a cat? Can you dur- turn a dog into a cat? How does this work?
1: That's a great question. Um, and that, that's probably one of the m- most misunderstood things. A lot of people think that, that my unusual success has come from the fact that I have attracted cats to my program. They're hundred percent right. You know, the, the team with the best athletes wins. And they say that it's not good for, uh, programs that do not have cats. And, and so what I say to them is that if you train, you know, I'll, I'll use a, if you train a dog, like a cat, that dog will become more cat like, um, so this idea that somehow feed the cats is an elite training system for people like Marcellus Moore, who I coached, um, Last year, ran 1031, the fastest time in the history of the state of Illinois. Um, and he was only 15 when he did it, wearing braces. Um, 1031, the 100, he ran 418.40 for me, laser time, 435 on turf. So this kid was a, a true cat. But what people don't understand is that my program works just as good for my nerdy freshmen, my freshmen that come in who you know can't run 18 miles an hour yet. It really works well for them as well. Uh, they, they love the sport, so they come back the next year. Um, we don't lose them. Uh, eventually, the CNS training that we do and the, and the bouncy, elastic training we do starts to take hold, uh, and they get faster and faster. I even train, like, offensive linemen as big cats. And I think that's, a, uh, I, that's one of my favorite subjects is people want to treat offensive linemen like they're hogs. Um, like they need to be, uh, treated in a mean, tough way. Um, and, and I think the best offensive linemen are big cats. And, and if you do have a big kid, that's more of a hog, you need to try, treat them like a big cat to get them to perform, um, at a high level.
0: Now you had said before, and I agree with you, most football coaches, they have this mentality of, we need to be disciplinarians. We need to make men out of these boys. How do you respond when these coaches think that feed the cats is a sign of softness?
1: Yeah, that's such a deep question. Um, first of all, that men and the boys thing, you know, uh, I've never coached a girl, but I've never heard a girl's coach ever say that they're turning girls into women. Um, that boys and the men thing is a total military concept. It is a, um, it is a belief. And of course, the popularity of American sports, um, just absolutely exploded after World War II, And the reason why it exploded was because young 20 or something year old guys came home from the war with great stories to tell, even though though they'd been through the hell of war, they did it alongside their buddies as like a band of brothers type of thing. And so it was really important for them to see their own kids, maybe not going to war, but going through a band of brothers type of situation where the coach would make it just incredibly hard, torturous at times. And you know, that all that stuff would, would somehow make them into men. And you know, the, the, the problem with that, in my opinion, is that if, it, if, it, it, if the goal is toughness and warlike situations, you are, you are not speaking performance. You're not talking about speed, power, uh, explosiveness. And when we lose track of our priorities, well, I guess I guess what happens is if you want a really tough team, that's probably what you're going to get. You're going to get a bunch of toughness. Where if, if I want a real fast, powerful, explosive team, that's what I'm going to get. And I'm going to kick your butt because, because performance wins. Uh, toughness is not.
0: Coach, what if somebody's saying, well, look, uh, you know, this is great. They're fast, but they're never going to last through four quarters of the game.
1: Yeah, that happens all the time. Um, People are constantly talking like that. And all I can say is Feed the Cats, probably the the coolest thing in my life, or I am 61 years old now, and um, as a track coach, and track coaches are nobodies in the sports world, um, high school track coaches especially, um, but Feed the Cats has caught on like wildfire. Um coaches tube uh a video outlet um that how mummy made a hundred thousand dollars with last year uh with his air raid certification course. Coaches tube wants me to do the same thing to feed the cats, uh have a certification course and thinking that uh, that not only would I uh be a, a valuable product for track coaches, but Football coaches, especially in Texas uh, and, and across the South right now, feed the cats. It's not mainstream, but it's catching on like wildfire. It just makes so much sense, especially today in the spread football world, the air raid world, where, where the fastest athletes are, are your best football players and the fastest, explosive, uh, most powerful teams, they win games. It's not the teams that are the toughest or the best in shape. Um, Two quick stories that I think will, will explain what I'm talking about here. If, if you have 30 kids on your team that can run under four, six in the 40, 30 kids. uh, First of all, you must have prioritized speed in the off season because that doesn't happen. Normally, you know, if you see a turtle on a fence post, it didn't get there by accident. And (laughs) by the way, in 2017, we had at my high school, 30 kids under four, six, and the 40, 30 kids. Um, that's amazing. Well, wow. if you have that, you, you're you going to play for the state championship, and we did in football. Um, but if you have that, what's going to happen is I always say the fastest kids in the first quarter are also the fastest kids in the fourth quarter. There's no question in my mind that is true. Um if, if you can run, let's say you can run four, four, five in the 40. I think you can run four eights all night long. That's called speed reserve. And, and so my first thing when people say you have to run gassers, and I totally believe you need to do away with gassers, um, that you have to condition in order to play in the fourth quarter. Conditioning makes you slower. So you don't do that. You want to be fast and fresh on Friday night or Saturday if you play in college or Sunday if you play in the NFL. You want to be fast and fresh. So if, if, if you're able to run four five on game night, your slow speed is going to be 4.8. The teams you play against, they might be able to run 4.8 all night long, but they're going to get their ass kicked. And so the other story is much more anecdotal, but I love it a coach from Muscoot, a guy named Josh Lee uh, sent me a testimonial. He was a former meathead coach, just like all football coaches do toughness, long practices, gassers, blah, blah, blah. And he jumped in to feed the cats this past season. He called me and said, or wrote me, I can't remember which, said that his running back had gained 317 yards the night before 317 and 33 carries. And, and, uh, He said you know what he was really tired on his 33rd carry in the fourth quarter and and he said but you know what coach there's nothing we could have done during the week that would have made him fresh for the fourth quarter that basically what he's saying is give me a powerful elastic uh, explosive super fast running back and he would rather that guy be fresh and ready to perform at the highest level on game day rather than to be, quote, unquote, in shape.
0: So I'm reading through some of your articles. You mentioned some things in Feed the Cats that I think would drive football coaches crazy during a practice. Can, can you rattle off a couple of things that you would think are okay that would, would drive someone nuts?
1: Yes. Um, the main thing is the recovery issue. In a Feed the Cats football program, you allow the game to be the hardest thing you do. First of all, that drives, that blows people's minds. Nobody ever says that. My dad in basketball, 47 year basketball coach, used to say, we're going to make practice so hard that the games are going to be easy. And I don't think anybody ever questioned that thinking. Never. Kids, coaches, whatever. And then somebody like me comes around and says, He's wrong that we want the game to be the hardest thing they do, because if we make practice really hard, we will make our kids slower, less powerful, less explosive, less elastic. And so so we want practice to be high performance and let the game be hard and and (laughs) bear with me here. What happens if you if you're going to do that, you're going to have to actually say, what's your, what's your number one priority in practice? And that's rest and recovery between high performance, uh, plays. Well, if rest and recovery is really important, then you cannot run from drill to drill. You cannot, this is one of my favorite stories. Uh, I was talking to a football coach the other day that said that, uh, for their water breaks, the water was a quarter mile away from the field. And they were—they had to run there and run back, and and so he just say, by the time we were seniors, we said fuck it, we ain't, we ain't, we don't need water, you know. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just I'm just we're just gonna stay here and chew on some salt tablets or something, and and that type of practice. And I just talked to—I love testimonials. I just talked to a Hall of Fame football coach from Illinois a couple of weeks ago. Thirty years in the business. Um, tremendous success and he said he said I'm changing everything I I, after he'd seen the webinar that I did along with Dan Casey Brad Dixon and Kurt Hester uh, which is a real cool webinar by the way about sprint based football he said after seeing that he said the slide that really got him was that in the NFL there are 75 minutes of televised grown men loitering on the field televised guys standing around this doesn't even include, uh, you know, like, uh, slow motion replays and stuff. We're talking about just televised standing around. And what he said was that it, it all came together when he saw that slide, that football really is a choppy sport. You know, the average drive is six plays. The average drive is six plays. The average work to rest ratio is one to six. Uh, it's it's typically i mean like uh, if you play one way in high school football you play five minutes in like two and a half hours of, of game time um it is unbelievable how choppy the game is but coaches like the guy i was talking to believe that his practice was his art it was his canvas that that he wanted people to see constant motion on the field. Whistles and movement and no standing around and all that stuff. Even back and forth from the water. So so coaches have gotten this into their head. A really good football practice should be choppy like the game. It should resemble performance where, where everything is high speed, which requires, I would argue, even more work. To rest ratios than game time actually provides. Like, for example, you know, if you have like 25 seconds between plays or 30 seconds, I think 30 is the average. Um, I believe you actually need more of that. Um, University of Minnesota uh, last year, PJ Fleck had one of the greatest years of all time, taking a horseshit program like Minnesota and winning 10 games and beating Auburn. And I talked to a wide receiver uh, came to see me, and, you know, I was. We we're talking about training and stuff. And I asked him, you know, about practice. He said, well, we never ran, you know, we never, never do conditioning. We don't do gassers at the end. If you don't know PJ Flack, he's a former terrific track athlete himself uh, from Illinois, small school in Illinois, really fast. So he understands speed. He said, but you know what, coach? You know, we can run 100 plays in 30 minutes and practice. I go, wow, man, that takes a lot of organization. I said, now you are not running 100 plays, though, right? He goes, oh, no, that's that's three offenses. Ah. So if you think about that, that kid's doing a five-second play once a minute. And so his work-to-rest ratio is huge. And why would P.J. Fleck want that? Because he wants that damn wide receiver to run electric routes, not to trudge through a route like most teams do, but to run – an electric. I mean, I would want receivers to run faster routes in practice than they do in the game.
0: So, coach, are you like, I, are you okay with the guy walking? Like he he runs his route, he, he walk back to the huddle. No, but but
1: I think you have to. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? Yep. yep. Um,
1: that is so hard. I, I mean, people have to understand. I'm not a. I'm an old school coach. You know, I, I've been a coach since I was born, you know, in 1959. Um, I mean, I grew up with, you know, one of those guys that, you know, had the uh, flat top, you know, and, and, you know, my father coached all three sports and or four sports actually. Um, so, I understand that, you know, the way somebody walked, I still think you need to teach body language. <laughs> uh, that's old school. Um, but, but you've got to have, you've got to incorporate, you have to be uncomfortable with the amount of rest you're allowing your kids between between plays. Otherwise, you are practicing in third gear. This is a, a crazy thing. You know, Willie Taggart, the coach at uh, Florida State, um, he just threw his kids under the bus. I hate the son of a bitch. Uh, threw his kids under the boss after the first game, said that the kids, the athletes of Florida State did not follow directions. They did not hydrate well. And they had like 11 cramps and got beat by a subpar team in their opener. Um, and, and it's so crazy. Uh, cramps are not caused by a lack of hydration. They're not caused by a lack of pickle juice, a lack of Gatorade, a lack of bananas, a lack of salt. They are caused by the cns feedback loop in other words um, uh, I'll, I'll try to simplify this basically if you are practicing in third gear uh, in 110 degree weather for five hours a day and then you go to play in a game where you're going to do one fourth of the volume but you're going to do it in fifth year you're going to You're, you're going to be trying to go as hard as you can possibly go. That's when you cramp up. That's why nobody cramps in practice. Everybody cramps in the game. That's why you don't cramp as much in game two as you did in game one, because you are a little bit more conditioned to run at game speed in game two, because you had game one. So, so Willie Taggart thinking that his kids didn't hydrate enough. Really what the problem was, was too much volume. Not enough speed in practice.
0: Wow, I, I never actually thought about it that way. You're I've never actually seen a guy cramp in the middle of a practice, and the cramps just get less and less as, less as the season goes on.
1: That's right, and, and think about when you're practicing preseason. You are practicing in August. Hell, in New York, it's hotter than Hades.
0: Yep, yep. you know,
1: and and people don't cramp don't cramp them. They, they they cramp in the fourth quarter in the first game.
0: Wow. <laughs> So I, I gotta uh, I'm gonna change gears slightly, but still, still on the same topic. So Nick Saban once said mediocre coaches don't like being around overachievers, and overachievers don't le- like being around mediocre coaches. So can a feed the cat coach work with a traditional coach? Can they coexist?
1: Mm. Yeah, you know, that's, that's one of the hardest questions I've ever had. To tell you the truth, you know I love Saban's comment because I think it's true, um, and I, I think that generally speaking. Uh, people really have a hard time being around anyone who's not like them you know I think our country is kind of showing that right now Um, and you know it is the hardest thing for hell it's hard in track too but for sure in football the hardest thing for a feed the cats football coach is to coexist with old school coaches because once you've truly heard the feed the cats approach as, as soon as you've let me into your head, it—I it, I, I say it's like you know drinking the Kool-Aid or something. You are like forever changed. And whenever you see bullshit um, on the football field, you say that's bullshit. I, I don't think I can handle this. I've had, I've had head football coaches uh, come to me with me for three hours and say, "Coach, I am just so—I mean, this is like this is." I feel renewed. This is going to change my life. Um, he goes, but my number one assistant is never going to buy into this. <laughs> We're talking about a head football coach now who says, who acts like there's going to be a mutiny of their staff if they're not a military based, high volume, no rest program. And, and so I, I really think it is hard. But then again, I think about, about all the things that have been, you know, all the transitions in any life, politics, whatever, how many hard things we have to sell. You know, um, uh, we have to be able to articulate why we do things. And we have to have enough charisma to change people's minds. I mean, if if we can't change people's minds, then then hell, I guess our ideas aren't very good. And so, you know, that's kind of like my passion, you know, is is that um, I'm out there trying to change minds. And the reason I'm trying to do this is it makes coaches better coaches. It makes coaches better fathers and family men. And it makes kids better
0: athletes. Well, Coach, you nailed it, man. Like once I started reading your articles, I couldn't unthink it. It was in my head. And then if I'm at a practice where there's a kid running gassers or the practice is four hours long, I can't unthink that. And all I'm thinking is we're making these kids worse. So that's kind of why I asked the question. And, and part of the reason I brought some of the guys from our staff down to Festus to that track football consortium was to also infect them with this virus, you know, let them see that's <laughs> my crazy idea. There's a whole bunch of people in this room are thinking the same way.
1: Yeah. I and mean, we're talking about people that uh, are pretty damn good coaches. You know I mean? Uh you know, we're not talking about guys. They're getting their brains beat out. I, I have yet to find a football coach who has adopted. Sometimes we don't, a lot of coaches don't call it the feed the cats thing. Cause that's like, would be given like me too much credit or something. They call it sprint based football. Um, and you know, coaches that have gone to a sprint based, uh, type of football without a focus on endurance, um, without a focus on toughness. Um, By the way, I think that really fast and powerful kids uh, that love what they're doing are tougher than hell. I don't I don't think they have to be tortured to create toughness. I don't think I don't believe in the Spartan uh, model of toughness where they would beat their young boys to near death and and somehow that would create better warriors. Um, I believe in making those young boys as fast Strong um, as they can possibly be, and still love football like it's the their favorite thing they've ever done. I think those people play well come game night. So, um, so yeah. Once, once people do that and buy in, there has not been a single coach that have been that I know that has been exposed to this who have said, you know, I tried it for a couple of years. Now nah, I'm going back to the old way.
0: So let's flip it to the athlete then, because every kid is on Instagram, Twitter. There's the grind, the hashtag no days off, all this garbage. What do you do if you you go through your workout and then this this kid does another workout on his own? He's kind of like throwing paint on your Mona Lisa.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I I think once again, it goes back to being able to sell it. Uh, I wrote a recent article about return to football from COVID. And basically uh, what I talk about is, even though, you know, they're going to be out of shape and all that stuff, get them in shape by doing football-like activities. You do anaerobic stuff of five to six seconds that is fast and explosive, very similar to what football requires. And they will magically become more and more aerobically fit as they do that without doing 30 minutes of stadium stairs and, you know, like two mile runs and things like that. So, What I said in that article was, uh, you'll know if you've done enough. If you ask your kids after practice, guys, could we have done more? And if everybody raised their hand, yes, then you know you've done enough. I know that's kind of a a funny way of doing it. But basically, we never want to burn the stake. We always want to cherish not only the present, but also the next day. We never want what we do today to ruin tomorrow so all of that is a part of it but you've got to tell the kids the why you've got to tell them that fast explosive powerful athletes become your best football players that slow and tired and 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 uh, half injured uh, beaten down athletes are not your best football players and all that stuff is just crazy traditional crap and how Our world has been flooded with crazy traditional crap since the beginning of mankind and, and that we have to break free of those bonds. Now, having said that, I also, this is a big thing in my philosophy. As coaches, we must do our best and then surrender to the results. So if a kid wants to go out and double train, we can't let it bother us we have to just say, screw it. You know, he's going to do what he does. Now, what's cool about Feed the Cats is he, he may come in the next day and we're timing them in 10 meter flies and he runs slower in hell. And you might ask him, what's up with that? Is there a reason? Are you sleeping good? He goes, well, I had a hard squat workout last night with my trainer. Mm-hmm. And you, you might say, well, how's that working out for you, buddy? And he like shakes his head, kind you know, like, Well, but no, that's, that's the importance, you know, and feed the cats is totally, I mean, we're measuring crap, you know, how, how far they jump, how far they throw, how how fast they are, especially, and, and when you are constantly performing in practice, I know that sounds weird. I don't think I ever performed in a football practice in all my years in football. We just practiced. But when you are performing in practice, especially if you're getting timed and measured, you can start to make the case to kids, you know, that some things they're doing may not be helping them.
0: Yeah. Most guys just want to get through practice. Like, can I survive this practice? I'm going to give the minimal effort every day, every minute of this practice, just so I can come out of this thing able to walk.
1: Yes. You know what I think, you know, uh, I mean, just the, I mean, I remember lacing up my shoes, you know, and. After a long day at school, going out to football practice, and it is kind of like a death march out to football practice. <laughs> it, it wasn't something we look forward to. We we did practice to get to playing the games, and and it's a totally flip of the switch to think that you're going to perform in practice, and the coach is going to care if you are recovered enough. And you, I don't know if you're a runner. I've been a runner all my life, and um, and you know like. I run four marathons and one of the things that a marathon runner will do is try to distract himself from how much the race sucks, you know, whether it's music in his ears or thinking about something else, um, you are detaching from something hard. And I think that's what kids in traditional practices have always done. They have tried to distract, they're thinking about other shit all the time and, in a feed the cats situation, when we're wanting kids to perform, we want a laser-like focus from athletes on the things that that win football games.
0: I love it. I, I love it. Yeah, because you think about even if you're trying to distract yourself during practice, are you, are you retaining the playbook? Are you retaining attention to detail on the drill? And you're just getting worse. You're getting worse every single thing you're doing.
1: Yeah, and coaches, coaches. I think it's kind of an arrogance thing. Somehow they think that they. That they matter of course but they think that they are all that matters um, I love the story of the Beatles I think it was in um, the book Outlier um, that talked about how the Beatles you know how Outlier talked about 10,000 hours in order to be great well the, the Beatles put in their 10,000 hours that they, they would sometimes play eight hours a night in Germany I mean every night and, and that 10,000 hours of work allowed them to come up with a hit record uh, on their first album went you know, like gold, platinum, whatever. And there's two ways of looking at that 10,000 hours. One is that somebody drove them, somebody coached them, somebody motivated them to, to work for 10,000 hours. And I would say that's absolutely false. Why did they work 10,000 hours? Because they loved it. They loved making music, and if that is an extremely fantastic, awesome, motivating factor to do work, then coaches should try to find ways that kids love practice.
0: Yep, and coach, I think I mean I did more research on the ten thousand hours. I think they fine tune it to ten thousand hours of deliberate practice. Yeah. So if, if, if I'm running a rep at 50%, now I'm just getting – I'm training myself to run a rep at 50%. So that's why I love the feed the cast methodology because let's, let's run it full speed every time but take enough breaks so we can always run at full speed.
1: Amen. Every
0: day. So I got to ask about the weight room. <laughs> I love what you said that the weight rooms are mostly run by guys who are slow. <laughs> but uh, what, what are we doing in the weight room that Whoa. is making our kids worse? Well, I, I would say
1: if, if you could find me somebody who uh, runs a weight room, who is a former sprinter, um, let's just say I have not met that guy yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I love weight room guys. They're, you know, uh, yeah, they're good guys, you know, but, but they, they don't understand um, why they, they love the weight room. They love the weight room because they didn't want to run track. Why didn't they want to run track? because they get beaten races. And so, um, and, and even if they really worked at improving their speed, speed is such a, I say speed grows like a tree. That's why we have to focus on it like all the time or we're never gonna get any improvements. Um, so they didn't see improvements speed wise. So he dropped out of any type of speed program And when you go to the weight room, I mean, you and I both know that everybody in the weight room can see very encouraging gains quickly. Adaptations come fast Uh, for a uh, for a teenage boy developing size in the upper body changes them. I mean, they they become I mean, it's part of being a man and all that kind of stuff. And so these guys continued to do this stuff and eventually shaved their head and got some tattoos and started wearing their shirts real tight and they become strength and conditioning coaches and so then they put up signs in the weight room saying champions are born in the weight room and i think that's horseshit i think that uh the weight room is a tool uh to create certain exercises for power but power without speed is not power it's just strength you know strength you know, and body armor and all the things they talk about. Why the weight room is important? Yes, it is. But if if you are running a weight room program without a speed priority, not just a speed component, but speed priority, then you're doing it all wrong. Now, here's the great news, and and um, you would think after what I just said that every SNC coach in America, you know, would hate my ass, but they don't. <laughs> they don't. They. The, the great ones are like, yeah, I think he's talking to me. <laughs> I think I think I have like n- never truly examined why I f- love the weight room as much as I do. It's because I had success in the weight room. And all these guys have to do is to simply say that speed is the priority. Once you do that, your weight room will be adjusted, to make speed the priority. To make speed the priority does not mean you leave the weight room or denounce your calling as a um, as a meathead. You can still be a meathead. You just need to add that those speed days and maybe those X factor days, that I call them, into your stuff. And speed is not a two hour practice. Speed is like a short practice. Uh, I. One guy can go through a speed workout in less than thirty minutes. Uh, uh, you can take fifty guys through a speed workout in sixty minutes. That leaves enough time to still get into the weight room, and and then once speed is the priority, you will no longer accept doing so many squats that you have the squatter's flu for like four days.
0: There's- I was literally, I was just going to ask you that question because people are obsessed with squatting and ultra heavy weight for ultra high reps and then they can't walk for three days afterwards. So I guess we're on the same page with that, that, that is not, that shouldn't be the focal point of what you're doing.
1: Correct. Uh, there are many sprint coaches. I'm one of them. Chris Corfus is another. Uh, Franz Bosch is another who believes the squats have no business in speed training. I know football players are going to do it, but, but it better be done in very low doses so that it doesn't burn the steak and ruin really tomorrow now one we can get into uh, muscle slack and all that stuff as soon as you put a bar on your back there's some changes that happen that that only happen because you have a bar on the back and so it does not it's not very it's not specific at all towards the translation to speed but if, if i if i may I, let me tell you what i've learned about christian mccaffrey's work that he's done uh, with Brian Kula, who's a friend of mine. Um, the only time they put weight on a bar on, on his back is to do box squats, where he's just moving massive amounts of weight, uh, four inches. They never they never put muscle on his back or weight on his back and uh, do full squats. But what they do is this. They will do very, very heavy deadlifts, concentric only, uh, lift and drop, max three reps and then they will superset it with a uh, with a plyometric you know whether it's hurdle hops or polo jumps or something like that and then they sit down and and let the atp all come back for five minutes that once again that's blasphemy in the weight room nobody (laughs) sits in the weight room well i'm telling you right now christian mccaffrey sits in the weight room and he hates it He sits for five minutes, and he repeats that. They do three sets of concentric deadlifts with a superset of the – and that is the secret sauce.
0: Coach, I'm so glad you're talking about this because what you're saying, and I didn't know you were going to say this, it mirrors very closely to what we did in our gym with our team, with our high school team. We never did barbell back squats. We never did barbell front squats. Uh, We did the concentric-only deadlifts. And what was interesting, one of our guys was going to play to D1 college, and his coach was – Talking trash about, hey, your weight room's not good if you don't have a, you can't tell me what your one rep max squat is. You need to get bigger, you need to squat more. And I was like, man, we have the rear's really, got to come a long way to educate not only ourselves, but coaches at the next level who might take things the wrong way that they're hearing from the kid.
1: For sure. And, um, and you know, when, when you look at what McCaffrey does, and nobody would say that he's, you know, like under trained or, you know, anything like that. I mean, what he's doing, by the way, all this stuff, uh, Brian Kula got from Underground Secrets by Barry Ross. Uh, Barry Ross, if there's a feed the cats weightlifting model, and I was just exposed. I'd heard of Barry Ross for years, but I, I finally read the book when Brian Kula and JT Ayers both said that if you haven't read this, then you know we can't talk anymore. So, so I read it, <laughs> and it's a real short book. It's like ninety pages, and uh, but Underground Secrets. Uh, basically, Barry Ross was able to really get Allison Felix super strong. As a matter of fact, she did that exact same workout two days before she set a world record in the 400 meters. So, I mean, the idea that you're doing low reps, high weight, lots of concentric, um, um, never letting today ruin tomorrow, you're using the weight room as an accessory to produce power and speed not a strength only and then blindly telling all your guys that strength equals speed. Cause it doesn't, those things all fit in really well. And I think the McCaffrey models is really cool.
0: Now coach, you hit on this before you mentioned that you'd never see that sign in a weight room. What signs would you put up in a weight room?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I, this, uh, let's just say that, uh, do less achieve more. Um, <laughs> is never gonna be accepted by those shaved head, bearded, tattooed, tight shirted guys, okay? <laughs> and that's never going to happen. Um, you have to take down all the no pain, no gains because because my, my thing would be never let today, ruin really tomorrow. And then somewhere else in the weight room would be never burn the stake. And then somewhere else would be um, uh, any fool can get another fool tired. Uh, So, uh, and then another one, tired is the enemy, not the goal. Um, There's been people think I should, you know, sell t-shirts, those logos on that it would go well. But I think actually it would, it would actually be uh, not sold very well because you and I both (laughs) know that the traditional people are not, don't have things like that, that up in the weight room. It's always the opposite, toughness, pain, hard work, You know, like when you think you're done, you know, do 10 more sets. Um, It's always that type of stuff in the weight room. And I I mean, some football coaches really turn me off when I start talking about weight room, but they shouldn't, because I'm not saying not to lift. I'm not saying not to lift. I mean, uh, Michael Boyle, uh, he's a like Mount Rushmore lift guy. He, he read my, 10 sprint facts that I wish all coaches understood. Um, And, and it changed the way he did things before he was weight room only. And then what, after reading my stuff, he realizes that nothing is more athletic than the human body traveling 10 meters a second, that there's nothing in the weight room that we ever move the bar more than two meters a second. And that looks unhealthy and dangerous to me. Um, so he just bought into the fact that speed train is going to become a part of his program for all athletes. And he coaches a ton of hockey athletes. So, so he bought into that and he didn't have to like close his weight room. It is simply buying into the priority of speed.
0: Didn't he call you a heretic? In he a
1: good did. World? He would, I mean, it's crazy how my life has been, you know, that, I am like a nobody track coach from a high school in Illinois. Yeah, I've had unusual success and stuff, but you know, remember, track is an orphan sport. It's not. It's not something that you know like makes the uh, nightly news or something. So when I wrote that article, basically making fun of meatheads, is the whole article was just <laughs> making fun of people, and and so instead of being like I hate that son of a bitch, uh, Michael Boyle called me. And asked me to come to Boston, and it was one of the most uncomfortable presentations I've ever done. You know, like, you know, just a, a bunch of weight room people, uh, and basically telling them they're they're nuts and they all need to change. And but he introduced me as a fellow heretic. If you know anything <laughs> at all about Michael, he's never shied away from opinions and from uh, from disagreeing with the. Uh, with conventional thought. And, and it's weird. I mean, I'm an educated man, but I had to actually look up heretic. And when I looked it up, I said, that is a hell of a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> because, because we need heretics or else things just continue down the same beaten path and nothing ever changes for the better.
0: And, Coach, I, I got to ask you a question. You talked about sprinting a lot. And I know a lot of our guys are going to have this question, but you notice, you watch the Olympics, these 100-meter guys are jacked up. They got muscles popping out of their shirts, you know. Uh, are they jacked up because of sprinting, or are they sprinting because they're jacked up? Is, is there a correlation to that?
1: Boy, that's, that's, that's a, another a, terrific question. And this is, okay, this, a couple things. This makes people uncomfortable. Um, first of all, natural strength. Is more functional than artificial strength i mean there are people like throwing things at the wall right now if they're listening to us um <laughs> because because the goal of the weight room is artificial strength basically it is strength that you would not have unless you were lifting well the best sprinters have a great set of strength genes um and they're big think of herschel walker you've always heard you know herschel walker never lifted weights You know, Bo Jackson was playing like 12 sports, but he was all jacked up. Functional strength. And I would argue that most professional athletes have that natural strength that is so damn functional. Now, if somebody like I was born with a skinny basketball player's body, if somebody would jack me up, um, you know, basically I would have turned into a clunky athlete. Uh, artificial strength is just not as functional. I'm not telling people not to lift weights, but, but if, okay, Marcel's more the guy I coach, even though he's 5'6, 150, I mean, people looked at him and say, that guy's jacked up. They, they would say, man, we got to get our kids into the weight room more. And if you ask Marcellus, say, tell me the truth. Are you a lifter? He would say, no, I'm not a lifter. It was natural strength. So we should always be careful of seeing a body type and saying, we got to get in the weight room more uh, because it's just not the way it is. Now, the way you, okay, I was going to make one other point here, totally different. Strength is the most underrated strength. Sprinting is the most underrated strength drill in the world. Why is it underrated? You can't really sell it. You know, you can't I mean like well you can sell a weight room, you can have people paying monthly, all that kind of stuff. But will people really come to your facility to sprint? And it's not as easy of a sell. And in capitalism, if you can't sell it, then it's not worth it. So here's the deal with, with sprinting. Sprinting will make you strong. It will you there is a hormonal effect of sprinting that will actually increase the size and shape of your muscles. Sprinting is the best core exercise ever in the history of the world. Just imagine moving your arms and legs as fast as they can possibly move without the core moving. The core stays stable. So sprinting, we don't do any like planks or anything. My kids are all ripped up in the abs from sprinting. So, So I would like to tell people that, you know, sprint to sprint and lift to get strong and, and don't confuse the two.
0: Now, you mentioned that you can't sell sprinting, but I, I definitely now, especially during the quarantine, we're here in New York. Gyms are still not open. There are people selling speed bags, agility ladders. Is that That's totally different, right? Like that's not working on your speed. That's just working on – in my mind, it's working on being able to be good at those drills. Do you, do you agree with that or do you have a different stance on that? Hundred percent.
1: Any speed coach worth their salt will say that, for example, speed ladders are, you know, I mean, those are the most hated things in the world by sprint coaches. Now, if somebody called them agility ladders or twinkle toe ladders, (laughs) um, it'd be much more acceptable. But speed is all about putting force into the ground and you're not putting any force into the ground when you do a speed ladder. Boosh Schexmader said that if speed ladders improved speed, then playing the piano would improve pitching.
0: (laughs) That's awesome.
1: Yeah. And and, and you think about it, you say, yeah, it's totally different, isn't it? You know, uh, so, so, uh, and then, you know, bags and things like that. Everybody wants to be gadgety. You know, I, 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 I'm not a gadget guy. I mean, they'll sell speed ladders uh agility bags they'll sell parachutes god forbid um you know and uh, like people say well don't you agree with overspeed training and i'm like hell yeah i love overspeed training but not you know like bungee cords and things um, we run with the wind once again that's not a big a big sell but there was a multimillionaire from vancouver that actually uh loved my ideas and suggested that um he contacted a couple of his NASA friends and we built a speed training wind tunnel, um, which um, it is kind of, <laughs> sounds kind of funny, but wind pushes all parts of the body equally. It doesn't pull the body and would really allow people to feel CNS action that they do not feel normally. And that idea about a wind tunnel might actually be something cool in the future.
0: So, Some more progressive coaches have gotten away from gassers and long distance running, but they're focusing on the first 10 saying, okay, it's all about acceleration. Have they gone too far? Is top end speed, does that enable acceleration?
1: No, actually people, the people who, um, you know, say, okay, gassers and endurance running makes you slow. So that's dumb. Actually, that's super smart. And when they say, uh, football is an acceleration game that's super smart and and the idea that you want to be specific with your training is super smart all those things are really really good the only thing I would like to add and this is this is where they get it wrong is that m- maximum speed training is the number one global improvement of an athlete that when I say global, The max, when you improve max speeds, you improve your elasticity, you improve your CNS, you improve your strength like nothing else that's out there. Um, So if you're doing acceleration with no max speed training because you don't believe there's max speed, um, maybe, you know, like one out of every 20 plays does a player ever get to max speed. But here's the deal. The players who have the best max speed also have the best acceleration. Um, I bet you that Tyreek Hill has extremely good acceleration mechanics. Of course he does because the CNS, acceleration is strength and CNS. Well, if you're really good at max speed, there's your strength. If you're really good at um, um, uh, at your CNS stuff, Uh, that's, I mean, you got to both, I mean, what I always say, the best way for me to say it maybe is, is max speed improves acceleration.
0: And and coach, we're not, most of this audience, we're not track guys. I was lucky enough in college that my strength and conditioning coach, he was actually quote unquote, a track guy. He was a a distance thrower and he did like other things of that nature, but he, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know enough about this, but, would you be working on max speed with like we would call a flying 10 or a buildup where you're progressing and then you're sprinting at the end of that progression?
1: Yes. Max speed is how fast can your car go. And the best way to measure that, I measure it with free lap timing uh, where we put a cone um, 10 yards apart, 10 meters apart, a very short distance. And we will time that segment. And people always wonder how far do you run into that segment as far as you need. Typically it's 20 to 30 meters is what it takes the average athlete to get to top speed. So you never want to limit that fly in. So you you measure that top speed and the more you work on that top speed, the better your acceleration will become that, that A leads to B but B doesn't lead to A. I was training um, uh, a running back for the Colts um, uh, a couple years ago and he in his acceleration, he was just as good as Marcellus Moore. You know, the fastest guy to ever run in Illinois. Um, but his top-end speed would not have made my 4 by one team. And the reason for that, he'd been trained in a weight room and an acceleration in the absence of top speed. He was he, He'd never been trained in it. And he had the reputation of getting caught from behind. And not only that, but I believe that if he would have, been better at max speed no i don't believe this i know it his acceleration would have not just been like super it would have been elite so by training top speed you you get better at your acceleration
0: i think that's key and what about deceleration like stopping should should we be working on that and what drills could we do if we should be working on that yeah you
1: know uh, a good a friend of mine keir Wyndham flat uh he's a track football consortium guy and by the way the one you went was in festus but the one that we have twice a year is in chicago we had one in dallas last year uh we expect to have one in denver and in new york uh this year so anyway they're all over the place but keir Wyndham flat is an s and c guy with his roots in rugby uh, and now he's strength conditioning coach along with uh, Eric Corum at William and Mary and he developed something called the tribe test instead of doing 16 110s or something you know or you know the stupid <laughs> 300 shuttle stupid things where kids die of heat stroke and it's so dumb anyway he had his thing's the tribe test. The tribe test is you start the goal line you go to the 20 yard line and back you make one cut. The average football play, you might get to cut one time. The idea that you're going to cut 37 times, you know, like people run through agility things at half speed, that's just dumb. So his test was you have a six-second run, six. You go 20 yards and back, and they measure how far back you get. And then you recover enough to do it again, and you see if you can beat it. And if you think about it, not only is that very – football specific it's a sprint there's one cut but it it, and it's six seconds long all those things are very very specific but if you think about it what do you have to be good at you have to be good at absorbing that force at the 20 and come back and when 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 i think about that drill what i think about uh, i don't know if you're a basketball player but but the old-fashioned killers killers were 23 seconds long that was like the slow time that everybody had to make but you run foul line back half back, three quarter back, and then um, full sprint to the other side. Now, the, you don't need 23 second runs in football because plays don't last 23 seconds. But if you want to talk about a drill where you're absorbing force, I mean, if you're going as fast as you freaking can go and you have to plant your foot on a line and go the other direction, I would think that's a thousand times better than anything I've seen done with like cones and football practice. You want know to talk about like the oh, yeah. you no know, you know, you know, back and forth. Because you're not going at full speed. Nobody player cuts 18 times on a play. Um, and absorbing force is all about going as fast as you can and getting back to basketball. That's why multi sport athletes were so are so valuable because basketball players are like professional uh, uh, plyometrics guys and professional uh, force absorption guys.
0: And I, I love that you said that about cone drills. Cause we've just, we've kind of reinvented what we're doing at our, our training where we're doing i I'll say quote unquote as football specific cone drills as you can get. Meaning I've never seen a guy spin around in a loop 17 times. So we're <laughs> literally like shuffle, shuffle, sprint five yards, you know, shuffle, shuffle, sprint five yards, we're trying yeah. to simulate a, a football play as much as we can.
1: Yeah. I think, um, uh, Vince Anderson, the fantastic track coach at Texas A&M, who also is a, um, a marvelous speaker about football, he says that if, if you're not doing stuff that resembles performance, then you are detraining yourself. It's not only a waste of time, but you are detraining yourself. You are actually working against the training that you should be doing. And, of course, there's no better example than endurance work in football, where not only uh, are you missing out on speed training anytime you're doing endurance – but you're also literally getting yourself slower by doing that work. So, so we could apply that to things like you're talking about too, that everything, I remember Bobby Knight, who was my hero as a basketball coach before he turned into a monster. Um, um, but back in the 80s, I love the guy. And he used to say, everything we do in practice, I think about after practice saying, is this winning games for us? Is, is, is this winning games? And if you do that, if you start looking at football practices, basketball practices, uh, there's a ton of stuff that doesn't win games. Now, baseball practices, when they're hitting and fielding and pitching, I would have to say, yeah, that's pretty damn good. They're really being specific in what they're trying to get done. But, man, there's so many drills that are done in basketball and football. They're just filler. It's just ways to fill time.
0: So let's take it to this question then, warm-ups. You see traditionally now that, well, forever, people are static stretching. They're a half hour long. If they're not static stretching, maybe it's a dynamic stretch, but it's still a half hour long, and they're wearing their guys out. If you were going to design a football warm-up, how long would it be? How many reps or total distance would they cover? What would you do?
1: Yeah, I can tell that your, your brain is a feed-the-cats brain now because – just, I could tell your bias by, by just what you said there. Now, it's weird, you know, when you look at Belichick out there with the Patriots and they're out there in military formation going through static stretching that nobody believes in. Um, uh, you know, like I always say that a stretch rubber band does not shoot as far, and sprint coaches have for, for a quarter century now known that stretching a muscle may feel good to you at the time, but it actually decreases power 10 to 15%. And man, you don't want to decrease power and elasticity. Um, so so anyway, you say, well, why would such a brilliant man and a brilliant organization do that? And I, I understand it is, it is a great way to start practice. Um, it's a great way to just kind of so, okay, we're about ready to have practice, and you're walking the line, and you're kind of taking the role, and you're, you know, you're you're making small talk with different players. It's just a comfortable – what I'm saying is, as a football coach myself, knowing everything I know, we did stupid-ass starts to practice just like that. And it's just uh, – it was a way that we – I mean, we want to know who was absent and why they were gone, you know, and all those kinds of things. Having said that, if you're truly thinking about warming up, your goal should never, it should be that whatever we do, we don't wanna get tired. We don't wanna get tired in what we do. And I think that overall warming up to prevent injuries, 100% horseshit, Um, every basketball practice I ever had as a high school and college athlete, we would shoot around, kind of a lazy shoot around. And our first drill was full court. And it was full sprint, and it was like dunking and all that kind of stuff. And nobody ever got hurt. You know that whole thing about if we don't warm up for thirty minutes, somebody's gonna pull a hamstring on the first play. It just doesn't happen. First of all, ninety-eight percent of your football players aren't fast enough to pull a hamstring anyway. So, so what you need to do is do a short uh, warm up with recovery. Possibly uh, being able to teach sprint technique as you're doing it. You know, if you think about skips and marches and things like that, um, add a little bit of jump training. I'm not a lot, but you know, jump over an imaginary box five times. Things that we do in our sprint workouts as our speed drills. We don't call it warm up because warm up to me sounds like slow, uh, get tired. Uh, everybody's detached. I want an electric warm-up. I want full speed with full recovery. And, and if, if I didn't, you know, like prescribe to the weird tradition of being in formation, you know, walking around your guys and talking to them, I would just start with like speed drills, go for like seven or eight minutes. And my goal would be football specific activities as soon as possible.
0: Would you do a, the same or similar warm-up on game day and practice?
1: Yeah, I would. Uh, the only thing, you know, uh, I know, know you're aware of reflexive performance reset. Yes. Um, I've been a part of the uh, – I got in on the ground level. I got in uh, – I was probably the third guy in America, or, man, one of the first five in America to uh, – uh, to learn about the practices of Douglas Heal and be activated a guy from Cape Town South Africa who was brought over to the United States multiple times by my business partner Chris Corfist and be activated three years ago, I guess it was three years ago uh, maybe four or five years ago now uh, was was turned into reflexive performance reset which uh, which marketed, to performance people only, uh, be activated, actually marketed towards health professionals and was hijacked by people like Chris Corfist and Cal Dietz and Dan Fichter and myself. Um, I wrote tons. I think I wrote nine articles about Douglas. Um, and now it's Reflexive Performance Reset and it's everywhere. I mean, it is overseas. It's, uh, you know, I I, I don't think you can find many trainers, uh, not trainers, uh, s and people at the college level who are not very aware of RPR, and I would definitely include RPR. I do include RPR in our daily speed drills. Uh, we, do, we hit every spot in like a 90-second period. It's highly focused. Nobody talks. We go really, really fast. And then on game day, we would do the same speed drills, but we would go through a much more relaxed, um, uh, hit every spot, hit every spot, longer RPR session, just because we have more time.
0: And just two things, coach. I got, I got to thank you because I'd always heard of RPR, but never was exposed to it. And then at your clinic in Festus, you'll probably remember we were at the Holiday Inn about midnight and a guy was performing RPR on me. I was in massive pain. I went the next day to, to Chris' hands-on session and became obsessed with it. Went home, took my online certification, and now I'm just uh, – I'm a, I'm a firm believer in it. And then the other part that caught my eye was, was they were really talking about that you need to be in this parasympathetic state to perform. You shouldn't be in this crazy, heightened, jacked-up state all the time, and really getting your breathing and your body relaxed it puts you in that right state to tactically perform. So I got to thank you again for exposing me to it.
1: Yeah, that parasympathetic thing, you know, just imagine how I was, 53 years old, I think, when I met Douglas, and being a coach's kid, I mean, God, you know, I, I know a hell of a lot about coaching, and, and I raised my hand one time, I said, no, wait a minute, Douglas, you're saying the sympathetic uh, nervous system, that's like adrenaline, excitement, fight or flight, right? He goes, right. And I said parasympathetic is the relaxed state, correct? He goes, correct. And I'm saying, and we need to be in the parasympathetic? You know, I mean, <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean, my whole life has been trying to to accelerate the production of adrenaline in my athletes to get them into a crazed, you know, banging their head against a locker type of and especially in football. And he goes, okay. It is fight, flight, or freeze. And I said, "Holy shit, it really is, isn't it?" That's why guys at the state track meet don't do as well as they do the week before. Most of them. He goes, "Exactly, because they have too much adrenaline." That when when a state of fear is not a performance state, and adrenaline, you may think it's excitement, but it's the exact same thing when you see a tiger when you see a tiger and start running because you know that you're you're going to be eaten that is a state of fear and you may think you're running fast but what happens is your your body moves to protect your internal organs so there's a collapsing your vision narrows and athletes play better with expanded vision not narrow vision so all of these things that we believe true for so long i mean we should be like meditating quietly and breathing in the locker room before a game not yelling and screaming and and you know like putting a, you know the fear of god into our athletes so it's a whole different way of seeing things and as soon as you start thinking like that your performance is going to improve
0: mind blowing it's mind blowing yeah. so coach this next question came in from our some of the guys that I coach and they wanted to know if you, and I, I guess I want to know it too. If we have this feed the cats methodology, how do you discipline players? Because the old school is, oh, uh, we're going to run you. We're going to run you. Did you have a different technique?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm once again, that's military. Um, when I talk about feed the cats, a lot of football coaches, I mean, are like, yeah, but how do you function without physical punishment? <laughs> I'm like, holy shit, I mean, that. I guess people really feel like that. You know, I, I have no physical punishment in the chemistry, chemistry classroom, none. I have no physical punishment in track and field, none. But for some reason, football believes there has to be something, I mean, physical punishment is stuff like somebody like uh, uh, doing belly flops all the way down the field or, or <laughs> carrying a 30-pound Tackling dummy, uh, you know, twenty laps or or, I mean, I coach with guys that I think every time there was a mistake in practice, it was ten up downs, and sometimes there were twenty mistakes in practice. That's two hundred up downs. We're we're spending most of our physical and mental work uh, doing punishment shit, and and that's just built in, baked into the of football and so what I tell people is that is that first of all there has to be the the thing that I always talk about like I don't know about your mother but my mother could give me a look that would make me feel like crap. And the reason why she could do that is because I loved her and respected her. Um and I think that football coaches the great ones don't have to physically punish, and the more you physically punish, the more you lose your ability to to just get pissed off briefly, and to have the same corrective effect on your kids. That if if you have to physically punish, I guess the same as a parent. If you're physically punishing your kids, beating the hell out of them, it's probably a respect problem, and I mean maybe you need to work at deserving respect instead of uh, being a, a physical enforcer all the time now there comes a time when i mean i'm sorry but if i if i'm telling the kid you know how to do something and he rolls his eyes i'm sorry that doesn't warrant a nasty look that's like get the hell out of here but i try to be professional and say okay i want you to go home right now and tomorrow i hope you come back being a more coachable kid. Um, To me, um, nothing is a greater punishment than that. Um, That all athletes value practice time more than you think they do. Um, I mean, I've had kids cry. Um, You know, stay in the locker room, don't go home. And I, I go in there and they're crying. I say, come on in let's talk. Hell, that kid, he'll never roll his eyes ever again. And it's a respect thing. It's not only a respect for you as a coach, but it's a respect for practice. And I love that when we build a respect for practice, great things happen.
0: Now, you've coached for about 40 years. Have you seen the modern athlete, have they changed from what you used to coach maybe 30 years ago or even 10 years ago?
1: Kids have not. uh, I think kids are the same. I think things have changed. I think that... uh, That we have, um, we are struggling at the high school level to hold on to our kids. Now that there are so many capitalist entrepreneurs, and of course, capitalist is a dirty word for me. I'm a democratic socialist, Um, but the these entrepreneurs they're preying on parents, and they know what parents want. Parents want some say so in their kids' activity, and they want to travel, and so there's all this travel baseball that's created 12 month a year baseball players. There's all this travel basketball that's created 12 month a year uh, basketball. players. Luckily it's hard to make football 12 months a year, but the entrepreneurs are trying. I mean, they're making seven on seven uh, expensive and nice uniforms and travel. They're giving the parents everything they want. So they're trying to make football 12 months a year now as well. So there's, There's all this going on, and then you add in the mythical scholarship chase where college has become so expensive. I mean, uh, all four of my kids still have college loans. Um, One of them uh, still has $90,000 to pay off. Um, I mean, college is so expensive now, and the knowledge level of parents with scholarships is so piss poor i mean there are literally parents of 10 year olds that have chosen baseball as their scholarship chase not knowing that there's 12 scholarships divided up among 25 athletes at the best baseball school in america i mean the idea that you're going to get a full ride baseball scholarship is basically zero same with track same with every sport, with the exception of, exception of basketball and football. So I think those things have really changed, and have made parents much more proactive and much more willing to um, to actually hurt their, high, their, their their kids' high school experience in order to get them enrolled in costly programs. And the costlier, the better for the parent, because they think the program where they're paying $1,000 a month must be a thousand times better than the high school track coach who they don't have to pay anything to. Yeah,
0: and, wow, you're, you're hitting it again because sometimes the high school coach now feels like, the parent feels like, well, look, high school coach, the only thing you're going to do is get in my my child's way. We have all these other coaches. Just get out of my kid's way, and if my son isn't successful, well, then it's your fault. You, you've ruined his college scholarship. True,
1: and, and it, it's, it's a myth. Uh, you know, basically, uh, football is the easiest college – Football is the easiest. Basketball is number two. But both of those are so genetically dependent. I mean, it's so, I mean, e- even though running backs are only 5'10", you know, they're 5'10", 210 pounds, and they can run sub-11 in the 100. Um, I mean, they are such genetic freaks that it it's hurt, it hurts me because I'm an educational sports guy. I believe that sports are a part of a well-rounded education. Uh, maybe the most memorable part. I mean, you know, I tell my kids that their sports memories will be a hundred times greater than their prom me- memories. You know, it just—it's just the way it is. I think all of us can sit down with our high school teammates uh, forty years after the fact and remember crazy details. Um, so, the whole idea of of somehow subjugating high school sports for the chase of scholarships that really aren't there, um, it just it hurts me, and and that's where once again coaches have to be great salesmen and have to sell kids on the value of what we are doing right here, right now.
0: Now, how if you're you're coaching your team? And you're one of you, I mean, we have a lot of multi sport athletes, like you said, 12 months a year they're playing baseball or basketball or soccer or whatever. How do you balance that in with the feed the cats methodology, especially if that other coach is potentially overtraining them? Yeah, well, one of the great
1: things about, especially feed the cats in a track and field sense, is that I do not require two hours out of them. My sprinters are done in 45 minutes. Um, uh, they feel better leaving my practice than they felt when they came to me um that's the type of training we do uh, uh, a speed explosion power with big rest a cns type of workout wakes up the cns it doesn't depress it so for me uh one of the great things about my program is that a kid could actually go through track and field and even though i would never i don't like it he could actually play in a lacrosse game that night uh and do both. Now he would be much better for me if he would focus on track and field and not two things. But I think in track and field we cannot be choosy. We are such a numbers game that we need all athletes. You know the talented ones, the mediocre ones. We need uh, uh, we need guys that are doing dumb workouts with their personal trainer on their own. But hopefully the fact that we perform almost every day in practice they will start to understand what is interfering with their performance and the other thing that i want to mention and this is really important for football i think these days football used to be such a central part of american culture that football coaches could actually especially if they would had some success and some some tradition could actually um not work at attracting athletes to their program. That is no longer the case. And that's another reason why feed the cats is a great fit for football. Now I did feed the cats to attract. If you can go back to our early podcasts, um, the first couple of minutes, I said I did feed the cats to attract fast switch athletes, guys that could dunk guys that are super fast wide receivers um, to attract those kids to a track program Uh, In Illinois, where we had bad weather and long meets and generally an orphan sport. Well, now football, for many reasons, now we have COVID. Now we have uh, we have concussions. Um, Now we have these basketball players that do nothing but basketball 12 months a year. We football is now a numbers game. And so the idea that we're going to batter our kids all summer and just beat them down and make them tough is not attractive, especially to high, high Twitch, high caliber cats. Um, I tell uh, coaches that if, if you go to a feed the cats concept in the summer, prioritizing speed and pretty much nothing else um, that, you will start getting some basketball players interested in your program that were not interested before. And then at the, you know, like the week before football is really, that's the week that you want to recruit because AAU basketball is over. And there are every high school has a handful of basketball players who would start the first year they ever played football because they are professional stop, start, jumpers, They're they're professional at at, at catching and passing a ball. Um, They're aggressive. They have good size. But, you know, and actually, they're not doing as much in basketball in September and October as they do the rest of the time. So if you have a feed the cats program that attracts kids and maybe um, add in the fact that maybe you shouldn't be live tackling every day to the ground, you might start to improve your numbers and as you improve your numbers, your numbers of wins will go up as
0: well. I got to expand on that from my own perspective. I don't think it's just the players. I think it's coaches too. There's a lot of talented coaches out there that don't want to coach because of they're getting beaten down with these long practices, these long seasons, you know, long everything. And I, I really loved your article on the 18 survival tips for coaches. Can you just talk about how Feed the cats or that methodology makes a better lifestyle for the coach too?
1: Yes, I think it's, it's it's really important. That that article I read uh, or, or I wrote uh, came at an interesting time for me. I just read the book Essentialism, um, which uh, it wasn't like news to me. It was more like reaffirming what I already kind of believed. But, you know, it put it into better words than I'd ever put it. And, you know, I was also uh, a crazy situation in my family. I'd been divorced for a year and remarried my wife on the uh, 365th day. After the divorce, so um, we remarried, and <laughs> so it, it, it's kind of a weird time in my life. But um, but I kind of look back at all the yeah. things that made our marriage such a great marriage, um, and and so is a reflection type of article. But I really believe that coaches like I've coached for thirty nine years, and I like it better than I've ever have. Um, all the problems, all the fights, all that stuff. I still love it. And one of the reasons for that is, like you say, it's a feed-the-cats approach where I am concerned with performance, and performance cannot happen over a four-hour practice. It just can't happen. So if I'm concerned with performance, my practices are shorter. Um, my good friend Dan Casey, who has like a gazillion Twitter followers, he's only like 29 years old. If you're not following Coach Dan Casey, you need to um, on Twitter. I
0: love him. I love yeah. him. I'm All honest- I wanted-
1: he puts out, puts out a play every day. Um, he has a, a, a degree and a PhD in divinity from Duke University. So he's a very interesting guy. Um, but anyway, he, he wrote me one time that he said that even though he played, you know, high school and college ball and he was a coach's kid, that by the end of the season, he would be wishing away that season. I mean,
0: I don't I, know. I can believe it. I can believe it. And
1: this is as a player who loves the game. And he said he said, he vowed that when he coached that none of his players and none of his coaches would ever wish away a season at the end. That, and I think that's the mentality we have to have. Now, how do we get that mentality? That's, we get that mentality by having a simplistic approach to football that, that focuses on performance and speed. You know, the simpleness allows us to practice fewer hours. Um, It is, if if things suck, we need to fix it. We, We need to fix it for not only the kids, but for us as coaches. I got two of my sons that are football coaches right now. And it is, the weekends are so hard on them because there's so many hours of meetings and all that stuff. And it is, when they finally end their season, it is truly bittersweet um, it's bitter that they lost, but it's sweet that they have their life back. And I think that we need to do better at those things. Uh, I got, a, uh, I got a, uh, an email from a coach who said that since they did feed the cats, um, um, he, actually, he actually got a letter from a coach's wife um, on his staff thanking him for saving their family. Hmm. think about that think about that and you know coaches are all god apple pie American flag football coaches are all like that family I mean but then they neglect their family for you know like three months a year minimum and and so you know I I think a rested happy coach would probably make better decisions on Friday night
0: as well yeah and I just think about you go to summer practice, then camp, then the season, late practices, like you said, weekend meetings, traveling for games. It does it wears on your entire family. It's not just you. So I really loved in one of your articles, I think it was the old school football dosage, you had talked about a four-day-a-week practice schedule. Can, can you expand on that a little bit as opposed well, to the traditional five-day-a-week?
1: Yeah, I actually got to experience it. Um, I, I, I spent two wonderful years in Franklin, Tennessee, um, I left Harrisburg, Illinois, went to Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Nashville, probably the best place to live in all of Tennessee. And, uh, and I'll, uh, I had two different head coaches. They were both Hall of Fame freaking awesome coaches. The first year, um, the, the offensive coordinator said, Coach Holler, you, going, you got your matches ready to bring to camp? They called the first week of practice camp. And so I go, yeah, yeah, I sure I do. <laughs> well <laughs> – I got, to, I got there that morning and all the players and all the coaches were carrying mattresses. I said, holy shit. He was telling me the truth. I had to like speed home, grab a mattress. My wife was like, what in the hell is going on? I go, I think we have to stay nights. And so sure enough, all the kids slept in the girls gym, the auxiliary gym at Franklin High School. And they all had fans and things. and, and I slept in one of the pe offices on the floor i'll never forget it and you know the the booster club would feed us breakfast lunch and dinner and it was literally 24 hours a day for six days and that's the way we started uh, triple sessions so anyway we played played for the state championship that year um but i would i will definitely say it wasn't because of camp And that's one of the problems with coaching. We think that we have success based on all the stupid things we do. Um, But the next year, a new coach came in and he said, okay, we're practicing two hours a day. We're practicing on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, Thursday off. Everything that we could walk through on Thursday, we can walk through on Friday after school. And the defensive coordinator was like, what the hell? There's (laughs) there's no way I can put everything in. What am I going to get, like 90 minutes a week? He goes, Yep. He goes, There's no way I can't do it. He goes, Well, you better make it simpler. And, yep. and so that's what they did. They went eight and one, I believe, in the regular season and then lost in a heartbreaker the first round of the playoffs. And there was a petition by the parents to get him fired because somebody seemed golfing on a Thursday afternoon. And, but to me, that was like the ultimate feed-the-cats type of dude, you know? And, and the fact that they lost a heartbreaker in the playoffs and went 8-2 doesn't mean they
0: lost because they were soft. Um, sometimes you just lose. And I, I'm a firm believer in the Pareto principle and Parkinson's law where the Pareto principle is focus on the 20% that gets you 80% of your outcomes. And then Parkinson's law says limit your time because you're only going to get done what's important in that time by removing extraneous time. So that, that coach was right. Yeah, if you only got 90 minutes, well, then get rid of all the stuff that doesn't matter. Just focus on that 20%. Yeah,
1: I talked to a coach one time, and said, um, said, well, I, I really I love what you do, you know, but you know we have our offense is pretty big, you know. And I go, okay, how many, uh, how many specifically different pass plays do you have? He said, 15. Mm, I said, cut it down to eight. And you could tell it was like a dagger in his heart. You know, like, hey, oh, man. I said, wait, let me ask you one more question. Which ones are you going to get rid of? <laughs> he said, well, the ones that aren't as effective. <laughs> you know, that, that goes to what you say, you know, the Parkinson's thing, you know, that when, when you really, not only do you find the 20% pretos 20% that gives you 80% of results, but I even say you find that 20 and make it thirty. You expand on what really works, right? And and all of a sudden, you're starting to think like an essentialist.
0: So I got to talk to you about that because I loved your presentation. Even when we when I, we spoke the first time, you said uh, I sounded like I had rebel talent. And then you, when we got to this football consortium, there was all these people with this rebel talent mindset. So my first question to you, let me two questions here. One is, what made you an essentialist? And then two is what book or books would you most highly recommend to these rebel rebel talent coaches?
1: Yeah, there's, there's several things there. Well, you know, like, probably what made me an essentialist was the fact that I had four kids at home and a wife that I wanted to be with. And so you probably know, you know, like some, some coaching staffs will stay 90 minutes after practice, you know, not talking about anything important. They just, love being there and they don't want to be home and and uh, (laughs) (laughs) and I was never like I was always the first coach to leave you know like like hey I'll stay late tomorrow if I can leave early tonight you know and um so anyway I I think basically I just didn't want to spend extra (laughs) time um doing stuff that when I would rather be you know at home and all that um Rebel talent, I need to address that. Rebel talent to me is somebody with the courage to be different. Um, it sounds fun to have the courage to be different, but remember, if you have the courage to be different, um, um, when you lose, people might want to fire your ass. Yep. Because you're different, you know? And um, and so you have to have the courage to be wrong as well. I, I think one of the bravest things that ever happened to me as a coach, I mentioned earlier, when I was given the keys to the car, head basketball coach at age 23, I was, I was able to crash my car and figure out why I crashed it, fix it up, and do it better. I was able, I think you learn 10 times more in one year as a head coach than you do in 10 years as an assistant coach. Because you are forced to do things, and, and when you're wrong, you fix it. And if you have the courage of being different, then you're doing like wrong things that nobody else has ever done. And that's even better. So. Um, so, yeah, I think all that stuff is fun to talk about um, in terms of now, you asked me about books.
0: Yes. Yep. Books. I, I know you. One thing that you recommend us was chop wood, carry water. Sure. And that's our, our training outfit. We talk about maybe a chapter or two a week. So we read the book, and then we we each talk about it and have our share our personal experiences on it. So thank you for recommending that.
1: Yeah, Chopwood Kerry Water uh, was recommended by Steve Jones, uh, you know, a real good friend of mine, who happens this, this is crazy. In his head coaching career, he is 112 and seven. Wow, unheard of, right? Uh, I believe his winning streak went to you know, like 90 games. Or uh, they won the state championship i know five years in a row uh going 14 and 0 so anyway so he when, when he says you got to reach up with carry water by josh medcalf i read it and now i promote it and a lot of teams actually buy it for like their senior leadership and and they use it kind of as a textbook so it's really really good um on the edgy part this isn't a sports book but i loved it anyway the subtle art of not giving a fuck oh uh, like, bravo yes oh mark manson <laughs> Um, he's a rebel talent, okay? Um, I I think if there's ever a sports book that's not really a sports book, it's the subtle art, which is fantastic. Uh, As an interesting, the Sports Gene by Epstein is just a remarkable sports read. Um, For a football coach, if you haven't read The Perfect Pass um, by uh, T.C. Glenn, the perfect pass It's basically the story of how mummy and Rick Leach uh, written by a guy that's one like Pulitzer's doing history work. The sub, the, uh, the perfect pass is, is the best football book that's ever been written. I've already mentioned essentialism. Uh, the talent code by coil is really, really good. Um, but then, uh, I want to mention too, that just yesterday, Steve Jones, who I just mentioned put out, a uh, promotion of medcalf's next book which was written along with lucas jaden who uh a good friend of steve jones it's called win in the dark and literally i just started reading that this morning uh wind in the dark so if, i would think if you like chop wood curry water um that Win in the dark is going to be a great one
0: so what what makes you read so much a lot of people they don't enjoy reading is it because you're you know you're an academic you're a chemistry teacher you know what what gives you this thirst for knowledge?
1: I I don't know. Uh, I feel real for one thing, reading um, uh, my mind can race out of control. Um, sometimes, you know, like all of us, you know, where we don't control what we're thinking very well and things. And, and my mind gets quiet when I read. And I, I like the way I feel when I read, I like the, the accomplishment of finishing a book. Um, and uh it's it, if you only look at the, the books i just mentioned all of these are like you know like sports type books that's like i mean the last two books i read was uh i reread the stand by stephen king which is fantastic to read during a pandemic um, and i and i read it's kind of embarrassing because it's kind of a romance novel but i read outback for the first time, it's about time travel back into the Scottish Highlands of 1700s and stuff. So, I mean, like 99% of my stuff is, is stuff that has nothing to do with, uh, with sports or anything. But I, I think that, that reading is truly exercise for the brain. And I've, I've always thought that people who read were more interesting than people who did not. And I think it's a real, the two most underrated things of life is being interesting and being interested in things. If you are interesting and interested, um, you probably have a pretty damn good life.
0: Oh, I, and I'm just from my observations of you. I think there's two things you're really good at. And you said you read books that maybe not don't have anything to do with sports. But I think one of them is that you're a really good synergizer. You can take a weird lesson. I'm sure you took one from the stand and can apply it to what you're doing with sports. But you're able to take one thought in one place and move it over to another. The, the other thing I think you're really good at, and uh, this is a question I had for you, is just public speaking. So I'm, I'm a big stickler for public speaking. I hate when somebody gives a presentation, they give out critical information, but it's so boring that that important piece is missed. We went to Festus, and and our crew is literally was sitting on the edge of our seats. The hair is standing up on the back of my neck as you're talking. I wanted to run through a wall as you're as you're giving your presentation. What gives you such passion about what you're speaking about, and what are some tips you have on how to give better presentations?
1: Well, first of all, the compliment is—I mean, you know—means tons to me. Um, I always said my father was the best public speaker I'd ever seen, like at banquets and halftimes and pregame and, and all that stuff. So, I, I think I must have learned stuff, you know, as his wingman. I was, I was, I was at every game, every practice. I mean, I, I just worshiped the guy, you know, and then so that helps a lot, I think. Um, you know, I, I think that, uh, I have the ability I, I don't I'm not bragging about this but I can make people laugh and cry um, and that's that's something a lot of people might not have and I don't know why I have that skill you know maybe some people run real fast and some, some people can't walk well, I'm kind of a storyteller but the emotion that I get I think is the key in my presentations I hope and that is and that comes from I think truth I think I'm brutally honest and not afraid to say things that you know that are true or different or weird um, I think that the, the fact like if you were sitting on information that could make coaches lives better and athletes lives better and not just better but like incredibly better I don't know how you couldn't be excited about it and so I'm kind of evangelical in the way I deliver um, even though I'm not a religious guy um, it, I, I, I'm just so excited about spreading stuff that could really improve people's lives that I'm not just talking about the ability to run fast. I'm talking about, you know, like overarching principles that really change things. Um, I kind of stumbled onto this, but uh, I mentioned Steve Jones, Steve Jones is a professional speaker that commands, he speaks to businesses and stuff. And we talked one time about the value of storytelling. We really, really learned better uh, We learn really, really well when we tell stories and and when we tell stories where we're actually in the story, that's even better because it's authentic. So I I think that all presentations need to be more than just a delivery of information, but somehow bringing it to life with stories. Um, And then the final thing, and this is just very, uh, you know, mechanical. You know, your slides, your slides need to be uh, bit, about 90% of my slides are a picture and a statement. That's it. It's not like 300 words on bullet points. Uh, you know, you should not read your presentation. Your slides should be kind of a roadmap or like, you know, like, oh yeah, that's the next thing I want to talk about. Um, and should not be, you know, like reading paragraphs. I mean, People come to see a speaker um, uh, because, because somehow being in person, it's better than reading their material. Um, both things are important. But when you're in person, you get to do the stories, the human thing, the emotions. It's really hard to write with emotions. So, uh, so anyway, you know, that if, if I was telling somebody who's doing a first presentation or something, I say keep your slides simple. Keep it a roadmap. I mean, once in a while, if you have to do bullet points to summarize something, go ahead and do that. But, but, but try to keep it as simple as possible.
0: And please don't think that that did not go unnoticed. When we got back to a hotel room, we said, man, this guy, not only did he have passion, but he didn't have a hundred bullets. I didn't have to read paragraphs. He's telling a story. He shows a picture. Sometimes we're laughing. Yeah. Sometimes you got us emotional when you showed us that video of the girl singing the uh, the national anthem and she was messing it up and somebody helped her out. So I mean that that yeah. you, you really did hit it. But you used your slides to help tell your story.
1: Yes, your slides are not the show. Um, you, you're the show. And one, one other thing, just a random thing. Um, it, it's bad at a lot of coaching clinics, but. Um, I saw something on presentations one at that time, that said, you should never stand in the dark that, you know, like, I know your slides look better, you know, if you're staying in the dark and your slides really show up, but people didn't come to see the slides. They come to see your face. And so you should, you should somehow be able to stand in the light. And you're not able, always able to do that. I've had to stand in the dark before because that's the only way my slides would show up. But but yeah, you, you should be trying to stand in the light, and you should be the focus of the eyes of your audience. It should not be, you know,
0: your your slides. So, Coach, this has been uh, awesome. I mean, I, I did a lot of research on you. I'm a big fan of you, and I thought I had – I knew all the answers coming in, and there was quite a few times I was humbled on this call by you just dropping some new knowledge bombs on me. It's gonna, It's going to continue to change the way that I'm coaching – uh, so, one, I want to thank you. Two, I want to ask you an, an an exit question that I ask every single person on the podcast for my own selfish reasons. But is there one thing that you can recommend to help me simplify or remove clutter from my life? And it doesn't have to be sports or sports training.
1: Mm, I'm working on that every day, man.
0: Uh, you know, <laughs> I, you know
1: I, uh, I, I think I put on 10 pounds. And I've had too much to drink during the entire... 14 weeks of COVID and I'm um, turn over a new leaf today where, you know, where I'm going to eat healthy and stop sitting around watching TV and drinking at night. But, you know, I think that that's the essentialist stuff. You know, I, I think that the subtle art um, also helps you with that is that we're constantly trying to say, God, just what Bobby Knight said, you know, like, is this, is this helping me win games? Is this is this fluff or is this good? Is this wheat or is this chaff, you know? Um, and if, if you're never trying to separate those things, then you're never going to improve. Having said that, I, I think it's really important, too, that I'm authentic and there's a hell of a lot of chaff in my life, you know, and, and uh, if, if I was a better essentialist, I would produce lots more content. Um, I would help a lot more people and so it is (laughs) i don't i have the answers i'm just an imperfect vessel so um so we all need to continue to look at you know what does matter and you know like football track speed man that's that's the big thing um in life you know it's it's your wife and kids you know that that's what really matters so um it's a
0: struggle Coach, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to seeing you again at one of these uh, upcoming track football consortiums.
1: It's almost two hours, and it felt like it flew by.
0: It did. It did. I feel like I could talk to you forever. All right, Coach. Thank you so much. Thanks, George. Thank you.